Hi, this is Samantha, and you're listening to the Layman's Doctor podcast, where we're bringing medicine home. Today, I have with me Dr. Andre Coleman, who is currently a medical doctor in Canada. I know a lot of you guys have been wanting to hear how to get to Canada, and I got you not one, but two podcasts to detail how you can do that. And he is actually now a fellow or he's doing a fellowship in palliative medicine after completing his family medicine residency in Canada. So I'm going to ask you, Andre, to just introduce yourself and let the people know a little bit about you. Hi, Samantha. Thanks for that introduction. Uh, So I migrated to Canada on paper in 2012. I was still young enough where my family migrated, so I was able to come under my parents, which was really nice. Um, and I completed medical school internship and did a little bit of SHO uh, between Maypin and Mandeville Regional Hospital in Jamaica, and then finally moved to Canada in 2018. So my journey is a little bit different because I started my exams from 2015. And back then, you had to do this exam that they called a medical Council of Canada um, evaluating exam, which is no longer in existence. And there's a second exam I did, which just got scrapped uh, this year, actually, because of the whole COVID pandemic. And that was the Medical Council of Canada qualifying examination part two, or the MCCQE part two. So that's a little bit different than, than probably what you heard Alicia talking about. Uh, so I'll, I'll really just skip to to coming here to, to Canada and trying to get into the system, right? So I'd, I'd say starting off, if you're still in medical school and you think you really want to come to Canada, do some reading into it. Look into it from day one, because uh, one of the things that you'll either hear myself or Alicia or someone else talk about is, is trying to get letters or references, right? And when, when you're trying to get these letters or references, they really prefer for you to have letters from North American physicians or, you know, ideally from Canadian docs. But most people, if they're doing medical school in Jamaica, they go to you, it's kind of hard to get those letters from overseas. So what that really means is try to get some electives. You do your fourth year elective, you do. Yeah. Sorry to stop you. So you brought up a good point. So I think in this one, we can really hone in on how to create a profile that makes you look attractive to Canadian schools or Canadian residency programs. And every time I have conversations just about any international examination, they really talk about having references um, from persons in the country or even an even better one is, for example, if you're trying to apply to a particular hospital or university or so that your references actually come from those people and i guess that's why having like the forethought from my head like just saying oh i'm really interested in studying in this province in this hospital and then getting like the observerships or apprenticeships or electives in that specific place and then reapplying i'm realizing that it makes it a little bit better or it makes your profile more attractive so I, I like this road that we're going down. Let's talk about how to create even from before you finish or after you finish, if you're able to, um, a profile that's attractive to Canadian schools. 
exactly, Emran, a hundred percent. And you know, it doesn't really have to be an elective. You know, if you say you want to go in, let's say, general surgery in Toronto, you don't have to kill yourself to get an elective in general surgery in Toronto. When they're reading through the file, these are people that reach through these files and these application packages. And they know you're coming from Jamaica. You only had at most 10 weeks of elective time. It's hard for you to to fly from Jamaica and do electives overseas. They'll have that kind of consideration, right? But if you can get an elective in Canada, point blank, then that's someone who wrote the letter, who is, you know, did an accredited residency program or training in Canada, is licensed by a regulatory body. And so their word has value. Um, sad as it is to say, they just they just can't trust people from outside of their country as well as they want, right? And that's unfortunate, but, but the reality. I feel like it's not really necessarily about trusting. It's just, it's like, for example, if you're in Ochi, right? And you're asking somebody where to go and eat, and they say, oh, go to Uncorked, but the only Uncorked, I think there's an Uncorked in Ochi, I'm not member. But anyways, the only, or even like an island grill, the only island grill you've ever been to is the one in Kingston, right? It might be the same thing. So medicine, sure, we study medicine, we know medicine, you practice it here. But it's, I feel like it's like about familiarity. So you are more likely to trust a reference from someone who is already in your system or knows your exactly. system. Exactly. That, that is that is someone, exactly what it is. Yeah, and then they know you as well. Like a reference, you giving me, for example, my friend suggesting a place to me is completely different from a stranger suggesting a place to me because I know my friend and my friend knows me and my friend knows what I like and what I don't like. So I can kind of trust their recommendation a little bit more. And I use that the word trust, but you get what I'm saying. Precisely. It's just the credibility. It's just the credibility of the individual who's writing the letter of reference. And so it has more value if it's coming from someone who they can assume has a similar level of training and qualification than their peers, as opposed to someone in a different medical environment where they're not very sure. Right? You know, I said that with a grain of salt because two of my references we're from Jamaica. So it doesn't mean that they don't trust Jamaican people. I guess that's what someone is trying to say. They, they'll still take those letters and they'll still read through them. And the best letter is going to be from someone who knows you best. Right? So there's a trade-off here. You want a letter from someone who's in the same setting as these people here. So you want a Canadian letter or, or even a US letter. But at the same time, you want a letter from somebody who knows you best. So if you did an elective and you saw the person for four days, Versus you did internship and you had someone for three months, then you don't really have to be a rocket scientist to know who might write a better letter, right? Um, so you really have to think through that trade-off. But if you can feed two birds with one spoon and, and get a strong letter from someone in a similar practice setting that you want to do your residency in, that is in Canada, it just makes sense, right? But if you're going to do that, you have to plan for that at least at least a year ahead, I'd say, because you think where am I doing the elective? Where will I stay when I do the elective? Which are the specialties I can do that elective in? How long in advance do I need to apply for that elective? Because you thought you're talking about whether or not you have a visa, whether or not you need to do any kind of immunizations, 
right? So you really have to think through that, probably from your third year, if that's sort of where you want to go. Unfortunate thing is a lot of people don't really think about this until they're finished medical school or they're in the final years, right? Um, after that, I'd say if, you, if you're really thinking about the whole profile and making your profile thing, the next big thing in the application package is going to be what they call a personal letter or a personal statement or a letter of intent. It might go by many different names. I know that you basically migrated in 2012. Did you go into med school knowing that, hey, I'm studying here, but ultimately I'm going to be going to Canada? Honest with you, Samantha, no. So that's that's a long story. Um, but no, starting medical school. So when did um, you start thinking about it? It was the end of first year going into second year. Oh, so you started preparing. Which is what I'm saying, you know, if you're really thinking about it, you start with that elective mm-hmm. stuff from day one, right? Okay, okay, okay. All right, so tell us about the personal essay. Let's go listening. Right. So the personal statement. I'll, I'll continue to carry through the journey of how I got here. So in that personal statement, you know, really what it is, people are having 100 applications and they saw your CV, they saw your exam grades, and they really want to know, who are you? This is before the interview. How do I really want to work with this person for another two to five years, right? It's a personal statement. So trying to summarize all of your life experiences that can tell that you will fit into this job environment and they want you as much as you want them, right? So for me, my personal statement had stories from medical school, stories from internship, stories about how I transitioned from SHO to coming to Canada in 2018. And in that initial period when I was here in Canada, I spent a year and a half doing a master's program. So there was a gap in medical practice. And I tried to tell them that, you know what, during that year and a half, even though I was outside of medicine, I learned how to work on a team. I learned how to you know, adapt to a different environment and learn new skills. And these are all things that I can transfer in your residency program and be a good physician, a good learner, and a good team player, right? At the end of the day, that's really what personal statement is trying to do. A lot of the times we think about it and we start off with a story about, you know, when I was 12, my grandmother was ill and the physician who took care of her gave excellent care. I knew from then that I wanted to be a doctor. And maybe that's your story. And if it is, you know, you have to realize that it might be a little bit cringeworthy to the persons reading it as well, because if they read that a hundred times, there's no empathy towards it anymore. And it now seems as if you're just saying a story for the point of it, right? So it's really about when you're writing this personal story, it's about, yes, being genuine, yes, sharing your story, but trying to have kind of a story that is both unique, linked to what you're doing, um, and talks about you in a good way, but makes you also stand out, right? hundred percent. I really like that fact that you said you paused for a year and a half from studying to actually do your master's because for a lot of persons, after SHO, or you suppose you might opt not to do your SHO period, you can end up having a gap in your practice. And I think that's, we 
maybe look at gaps in resumes or taking a gap year differently than first world countries do because a gap year it can be very valuable if you're using it to advance yourself in different ways so like maybe you finished medicine you did internship you did SHO and now you're taking a break to maybe try a new hobby or you know explore something else that you like because medicine in my opinion is holistic right and I think the lessons that we learn in medicine can be applied to so many different things but then also things that we learn outside so if you do a master's in something else or you take a course in something else that it can positively affect your medical practice as well so I really like that point about the gap in your resume that you brought up and talking about it and owning it you know a lot of people talk about this gap in resume stuff and and personally I would like to think that a gap in resume is just something that you have to explain that right so I did my master's these are the skills I have these are the skills I can use in the residency program that's no longer a gap right that was a period in time I spent doing something else and to be honest with you if it's even I wasn't working in a hospital, but I was working at Walmart or I was working, um, you know, as a taxi driver. These are the skills I got from that experience. And then these are the skills I can carry into the residency program. And it's no longer really a gap. It's just a different experience. It's sort of how I'd like to look at it. And the reason I'm saying that is when I was doing my residency, you know, one of my colleagues, she was a pharmacist before. Um, one guy worked in construction. To be honest, one guy did a master's in arts and was an opera singer before coming into residency. And and so they like to have people with these varied experiences because, of course, that, that just helps you to be more cultured and to have different perspectives when you're talking with patients, right? So I, I wouldn't want anyone to think it's frowned upon. If you left SHO and you, you worked in a different field for a while or you studied in something else, just find a way to twist that and use those experiences now in the very personal statement that you're writing to showcase how you as an individual have grown through those experiences and how you can transfer those skills into the program. So I want us to go back to getting references because I think how do you choose a reference and how do you during your short elective period make an impression that makes someone willing to write a reference for you? To be honest, there's an art to this one, right? Um, if it, It's good to know ahead of the game how long that physician will be with you for that selective period. Uh, a lot of institutions and hospitals here in Canada have their physicians rotate on a weekly basis. If you know that from ahead that it's on, only going to be a week, I'd say you can do it one or two ways. From the get-go, tell the person, hey, doing this elective i'm going to be applying for residency next year um i may end up asking you for a letter of reference so at least the person knows ahead of time that this is sort of one of your goals for the week and they'll probably start jotting down little things and experiences that they've had with you so that they can write a good letter at the end of the week midway through you could do it after you've gotten an idea am i getting along good with this person am i not getting along good and if you feel like you have that connection then you ask midweek and you remind them again at the end of the week, right? Uh, but you really just have to put your best face on. If it's an elective where you don't have to do call shifts, do the call shifts. 
if it's an elective where you don't have to see too many patients, see as many people as you can. Put it all out, show that you're interested, be a good person, right? Be punctual, be respectful. I think the vast majority of us from UWE, if we do an elective, we would be fine, right? That's the impression I've gotten from um, the docs I've worked with. It's it's that the training that we get in, in at UWE and really just the culture and personality we have as Jamaican people, they love it up here and you'll do fine. But the telltale sign that I, I think everybody should think through is when you're asking for that letter, specifically use the words, can you write me a strong letter of reference? And if the person wishy-washy and they're not really committing to saying, yes, I can write you a strong letter, don't use it. You can ask for it, you can take it, but don't use it. All right, so do you ask them before you start? And when do you actually get the letter? Say, for example, I'm in third year, I use my elective period. Do I ask for my reference letter at that point or when I'm actually about to go and try and apply? And when I go for my elective period, do I say, hey, I'd love to have a reference from you? Or do you say that after the fact and after you've kind of been like amazing? and met your goals. Yep, so you can ask, with the residency application in Canada, you can get early letters or references, but there's still a time period for, for when that can come through. So it's not very easy for you to be in third year, for example, do the elective and then write the letter from third year and just leave it there until fifth year. You'd have to ask them in fifth year to submit that letter for you. What they can do is they can write it and put it down right? So that they remember all those fresh experiences and then they can sort of just use that same letter in the future, but they have to date it for when you're in fifth year because a letter over a year to two is no longer valid, right? Um, the next thing I'd say is whether or not you ask at the beginning or you ask midway through, that's honestly going to be personal preference. I would not suggest that you ask at the very end of the rotation, because you, then it wouldn't be fair on the doc you're working with. You wouldn't have given them the opportunity to, if they want to write down those experiences that they've had with you and to have in their mind that they're going to be evaluating you with that letter. Uh, it wouldn't be fair to them. Uh, if you want to do it from the get-go versus halfway through the rotation, definitely up to you. I am a kind of person who I'm very, very blunt. So I'll tell you from day one that I plan to you know, ask you for a letter. I'm not saying write the letter, no. I just want you to know that at the end of this rotation, I may ask you for a little. And then midway through, I sort of feel out what's the experience like. If I feel that we're connecting and, and it's a good experience and I feel like this person might write me a good letter, I'll ask. If I feel like it was, boy, I saw a rough rotation. I just wasn't on top of it. My A game was now a C game. I probably wouldn't ask for the letter. Um, because I know deep down in myself that it was a horrible rotation. If, if I'm not really sure, that's when I'd say, can you write me a strong letter of reference? And depending on how the person responds to that, I'll still collect the letter, but I may not use it, right? Because there's nothing worse than a mediocre letter, right? You've lost the opportunity to have a good, strong recommendation with that person. Um, with someone else, I should say, by having that person give you a mediocre letter. Because for generally for residents in Canada, it's three to four letters that you need. You could collect 20 and they'll all be saved online 
and then you sift through those 20 and pick the three to four that you want. So I'd say collect as many as you can because you never know where you want to go, right? So collect some letters for, let's say you want to do internal medicine. Collect some letters for, let's say you want to do family medicine. Collect some letters, let's say you want to do pediatrics and psychiatry. Because then you have those available in the event that you decide to change what you're applying to, right? But as I said, if you ask the person for a strong letter and you're not convinced they're going to write it, don't use that letter, right? Try to see if you can get a strong letter from someone else. Because if, if they haven't told you that they're going to write a strong letter, it's because they won't. Okay, let's jump into Ace in the interview process. Interviews are not something we're necessarily used to doing. And I think for a lot of us, we just feel like, no, it has just become a formality, even with maybe residency here, because our interviews are not given as much weight as the interview process in other countries or in other places. So, or that's what a lot of persons say and believe. And we don't have a lot of interview practice. So for many of us, the first time we do an interview, maybe when we apply for a residency program here in Jamaica or know that you have to do an interview before you be get an MO position, that might be our first um, experience as well. So how do we make a good impression? How do we ace the interview? Yeah, that's a tough one, right? You're right. We don't get the training and we don't get the experience doing interviews. And the experience that we have is, like you said, very informal, right? Now, the interview process is going to depend quite a bit on what program you're applying to uh, and also what um, province you're applying to as well. So the smaller programs like, uh, let's say, general surgery, those interviews may be a little more personal because the application pool is smaller. But then the bigger programs like family medicine or internal medicine, those interviews are going to seem a lot more generic because they're sifting through a couple hundred applicants all at the same time, right? So oh, I think one thing everybody should really take home is the interview is not just you being interviewed by them. The interview is also you interviewing them, right? I know, I know it's kind of tough because the spots in Canada are small and very competitive and you feel like you want to just take what you get. But don't forget that you're also trying to see if, if this program is a fit for me. Um, and you can do that in the interview as well, right? How I'd say to ace the interview is there's a mix between preparing and not being robotic, right? There's some questions you can always expect. Why do you want to do this program? Why do you want to come to this center? Why should I choose you as a resident? Um, those are some common program questions that you can always expect. And then you have some other ones that might come pretty often as well, such as tell me about a time you had conflict. Uh, here in Canada, there is, there's a lot of indigenous health in some places, especially um, in the prairies. So they might ask you about a time you've worked with a First Nation or indigenous or native individual. Uh, and then also they might very well ask you about how you feel about persons um, who are vulnerable or underserved or minorities. And that can mean anything from, you know, persons of color to persons of different faiths to persons of different sexual orientation, right? Um, you may never have had any experience uh, providing care for those persons, but start to just make it up. 
if I was in this situation, this is what I would do, right? So you can prepare for those questions because you expect them to come. And when you're preparing for those responses, a lot of them are going to be, as, as I said, tell me about a time. So just think about a time beforehand because you don't want your responses to be more than like a minute and a half to two minutes at most. You can't waste time trying to think of a time during the interview, right? So just think of a time you had a conflict. There are a couple acronyms online you can find in how to provide an organized response. One of them is called STAR. So you give the situation that occurred, the task that you had to accomplish, um, the action that you did, and your reflection on the situation, right? Um, and use that to go through those tell me about a time when situations, right? It's, I think it's called behavioral interview questions. So that's one way to prepare for it. The next way to prepare for it is to realize that these people are interviewing you, right? So they want to see who you are as a person. They don't want a robotic interview where you're just giving generic responses and you're not really pouring out who you are during the process. So by all means, try to be as relaxed as you can. You know, I am a jovial person. I give a lot of jokes in my interview. Sometimes it went well, sometimes it didn't. Um, but if that's the kind of person you are, don't be afraid to let yourself shine during that interview process. Right? Uh, and if, if you do both of those together where you've intentionally prepared for some of the more obvious and common questions, plus you've tried to relax and go in there and just be a genuine self, then the interview is as best as it's going to be, right? Maybe they just don't want you in their program because they don't see you as a fit. And I would argue that if you were yourself and you were prepared for that interview and they chose not to take you, you probably dodged double it because if they don't like you and you forced yourself into that program, then those two years might very well be hell for you um, because they would they probably not treat you very well, right? So that's that's how I like to think through it. You're interviewing them as well to see, do I want to be in this center for the next two to five years of my life? I get you. I want to kind of focus in on some of the questions, those generic, usual questions. How would you suggest answering them? Like, why do you want to study here? You know, why do you want to work here? What made you come to Canada? How do you suggest answering those questions that make you both genuine but also don't really sound like in quotations everybody else yeah no fair point so i'll give you an example when um when they asked me in regina why do i want to go to regina like i said i'm a jovial person so i told them that i found a barber who has experience cutting black hair and so i thought that would be nice for me to be in a city where i know i could get my hair cut it, it could be something like that right Generally, they, they say, uh, try to give two responses for why you want to be in the program and one response for why you want to be in the city, right? So why do I want to be in the program? I looked through your program online. I've spoken with a couple of residents. I hear that your program has a very strong focus on, I don't know, palliative care. That's something I'm interested in. And so I want to be here to get that exposure and hopefully build on those skills. Why do I want to be in the city? Uh, you know, the best answer is to just think through, do you have family in the city? If you do, nothing better than that, because those are strong ties. 
um, a family here and I want to be with my family. I've been away from them for X number of years, and this is an opportunity for me to get to know them better and learn about that side of my heritage. You can say stuff like that, right? Or if you're going to, let's say, Vancouver, and they have a lot of beaches, and you say, well, I'm from an island country. It's quite nostalgic for me to have the beach. The beaches in Vancouver are amazing. This is a part of why I'm applying to your program. Those are some of the stuff that you can say, but you're right. You don't want to be too generic. You don't want to say something like, um, I read through your program online. I hear there is a strong focus on research because every program has a strong focus on research, right? So you don't want to say, I'm applying to your program because of something that is everywhere else, because then they'll ask, well, then why didn't you go there instead? Definitely, definitely. Those are some really good tips um, in terms of just knowing how to answer. And I hear sometimes they will throw curveballs at you, things that you really can't prepare for. I don't know if in one podcast I had, um, when we're talking about interviews, there was like a question about, just a random question, like if you had to choose between two animals, which one would you be? Did you experience or hear of any of those weird and just random questions? Yeah, you know, the joy of those questions is there's no right or wrong answer. The purpose of those, like you're saying, is to throw a curveball and see how you function under pressure. So they can ask anything from what spirit animal would you like to be? If you could be an inanimate object, what would it be? I think the closest I got during my interview was um, what's the symptom you like to treat the most? Because that's that's not really a question you think through when you're preparing for an interview. Um, just go with whatever comes to your mind first um, and make it work. So when I got that symptom, first thing I said was constipation, which in retrospect wasn't the best symptom to choose, but you just work through it. And if you can make up why that's a good symptom for you to treat, you make it up. So if your spirit animal is a bird on the spot, you just have to sort of make up what is it about a bird that I like that can be seen somehow as a good skill in medicine, right? Is it that the bird is peaceful, flies around, is involved in a lot of things, and when it sings, it brings peace and tranquility to the lives, which is what I want to do for my patients and to help them through difficult times, something like that. Somehow try to make it up. Um, but those are really just to see how well you function under pressure. So by nature that you can't really prepare for them, right? Okay. I don't even know, like, have we exhausted everything in terms of creating a profile? What else? Is there anything else that your profile looks for, you know? Yeah. So on, on this line of knee-jerk responses, there's there's a new thing that came out in the last couple of years called a, um, the Casper exam. And mm. that's essentially what it is doing, right? So this is an online exam where they... They give you a couple of situations, like hypothetical situations, and they mm. ask you, how would you respond in this situation, right? It doesn't have to be medical. Quite frankly, it usually isn't medical. You have, I think, about three minutes or so, or five minutes to answer three questions. Mm-hmm. So it might be a situation like you were out at a restaurant and 
someone decided that they weren't going to pay for their food because the food was disgusting. What mm-hmm. do you think about this situation? Five minutes, three questions. Boom. And and that's that's a very real part of the application package for a lot of programs now. So I'd say try, even not for the interview, for this CASPER exam specifically, try thinking through a couple of those what-if situations and, and have an idea of how you'd respond to them. Some of them you may expect to come, and some of them may just be twists on other situations, right? So they've created an examination that is just really to see how you think and how you react. Yeah, so it's just an exam, and the reason they have the time limit is they want to get your knee-jerk response, so you don't have time to think it through, right? Mm-hmm. The way I think about it is they're just trying to do an exam to see if you're a psychopath, um, <laughs> which is kind of funny because a psychopath would answer the questions appropriately, right? Um, but it's, that's really what the exam is. They give you a lot of these what-if situations. Mm-hmm. You know, people's items are missing at home. And now some re- some of the neighbors believe it's it's a couple of the indigenous individuals that are stealing the items, and so they want to kick them all over to the community. What do you think you should do? Right, sort of situations like that. Wild. That's wild. Wow. Yeah, the tough part is they're not usually medical situations. Mm-hmm. It might be some some social or you know injustice issue. It might be mm-hmm. something about race or gender inequality. Those are the situations they usually pose. Mm-hmm. So that's that's yeah, another yeah. thing to think through because if you can ace that exam, then going into the interview, they already think you're a decent person, right? You can think through different situations. You have different perspectives. You're not narrow-minded. You're not judgmental. They're already assuming you're a good fit for their program. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's already set you so many steps ahead. Canada has a lot of exams, is what I'm realizing. Yeah, there. So in total, right now, if someone wanted to apply, they'd have two exams to do in total mm-hmm. to become, um, you know, to do the exams to do residents and to become fully licensed. They would have to do two exams as well to be able to apply for residency. So there's a there's a practical exam called the um, the NAC OSCE. Um, and then there's uh, a written exam called the MCCQE Part 1, right? You have to do both of those to be able to apply for residency. So they've gotten rid of the MCCQE Part 2 because of the COVID pandemic. And so now persons really only have to do those two exams to be able to apply for residency, as well as those are the only two exams they do um, to be licensed with the um, LMCC. Depending on what residency you do, you may end up doing a board um, certification examination as well. Mm-hmm. Wow. So I want to use the last couple minutes of this just to talk about how to properly go about researching um, how to get from point A to point B. So moving from Jamaica to going to studying in Canada and um, how to really learn about your program and the hospitals so that you are, you kind of set yourself up for success. Yeah, so there are two things that you're thinking about, you know, that have to occur, don't have to occur simultaneously, but there are two things that you have to think about. One, 
in order to apply for the residency training programs, you need to have um, like status in Canada, either as a Canadian citizen or a Canadian permanent resident. So you're thinking about applying through immigration, right? That's a whole other thing. And then set it apart from applying for immigration, you're talking about doing these exams and trying to get those elective exposures and the letters of reference and writing up your personal statements. That's that's another hand that you have to work on. You don't have to do them all at the same time, right? So you could very well do the exams without having Canadian residency status, or you can get Canadian residency status prior to doing the exams. But those are two very real and very different things that you have to think through, right? And they come with associated costs. Um, so for the immigration, I'd say, you know, if you really, really, really want to do it properly and have your best chance, get an immigration consultant, right? Um, and have them work you through the process because depending on what your situation is, you have different ways to come up, right? And then after that, you now if you're looking into the exams, there's the Medical Council of Canada website to look through what each exam is. They have resource suggestions to go through, material to study to get as good a grade as you can. Um, and then in terms of the electives, there, there's this AFMC portal that persons use in order to get the electives. That's what I used. It, I think it started to get shut down, right? And so you started applying in different ways. Uh, but you can look there to see what elective opportunities are available because not every hospital or university is going to give every um, specialty elective opportunity for visiting students. So you have to prepare ahead of time for that. And some of them may very well want you to apply six to 12 months in advance. Right, so you have to think through that. Um, and then in terms of, you know, looking through the hospitals to find out what do they offer and prepare for the interviews, etc. When when application time comes, they have program descriptions up. And program descriptions can be organized by university or by specialty. And that will tell you which hospital it is, what's special about them. Um, and then you can go to the hospital or the university website to get additional information, right? So you have a lot of different stuff that you can use to, to best prepare yourself as, as the ideal candidates, right? Right. That's really awesome. It's really great to have persons who have kind of, wow, we barely, we didn't even talk about you. Imagine. I mean, I'm just realizing that even though, yes, you've shared your story and like shared your experience that we ended up talking about creating a profile that really makes you an attractive candidate for almost an hour now. And uh, I still feel like there's definitely more that can be talked about because I'm sure people like, well, I personally like to hear people's personal journeys and see how they did it and how they felt about the exams and stuff. But I'm looking back or I'm listening to what we have spoken about and we talked about the the references the writing the essay and then shining in the interview process and now also just being deliberate with their decisions if this is something that you want to do but why i said like oh my gosh we didn't even talk about your story is because i was about to ask you something that we usually get from the first part where you finished and 
you did internship and SHO, right? Right, and then right. you did a master's for a year and a half, right? Right, right. Wait, I have two questions. One, you made this transition after finishing med school or a few years after finishing med school, right? Which I think is super right. important um, because I think that a lot of times we feel like we have to have it all sorted out by internship, SHO period. But there's so many persons that I'm talking to who have lived a little or worked for a few years before actually making that transition. But then what I want to ask you is when you said you started preparing or you made the decision from you were in third year, was it or is it second year? I can't remember which one you said. Yep, from second year. Was this a decision that was always at the forefront of your mind? So you were literally doing everything um, from that time till the time you left um, Jamaica with this goal. So, you're, so, for example, every free period you had for electives or something, you went overseas or you had the goal and you did everything like on purpose or with the intention of it benefiting you going away or was it something like i want to go to canada yes and i'm going to do things to help me go to canada but then you started maybe buckling down um later down in your career or in your school life yeah so no so i had decided from from day one you're right um, all my electives were in canada all my vacation time i came up here um i'd applied for residency immediately after finishing medical school it just wasn't successful that time um and then worked for a little bit and applied again uh in in 2019 close to when i was wrapping up my master's right what i would say is as much as it would be super nice to finish medical school come up here do residency and just transition so beautifully you miss that opportunity to get real good clinical experience in jamaica during internship and sho you know i said that and I know that for a lot of people, that, that experience is very, very, very rough um, and for some quite traumatic. But the the learning opportunities you get from it, the confidence that you come out of that with, you can't get that doing residency up here, I have to be honest with you. So if, if that's you doing internship or that's you doing SHO or that's you doing MO, you're not losing out with that experience. In fact, you're gaining a lot of skills that you're not going to get here during residency. And what really happens is, is when we come up here with, with that clinical experience, we just shine up here, right? Truth be told, myself, um, there's another resident, Marcin in BC. Um, there are a couple of residents who just started in, um, in Ontario and they're just shining because we get good clinical experience. So this is a very good podcast for persons who are still in med school and are, or, or entering med school and are like, okay, I want to finish med school and then go over. But I want us to talk about persons who may, be, may have finished med school or an internship or SHO and are saying, I think I want to leave or want to migrate or you know things in their lives have changed and now they're trying to you know maybe their life has changed and, they, and their circumstances have changed and they're now trying to get into the program there 
do you have any specific advice for those persons who may not have decided that early on and been that deliberate who are now at the end of med school or at internship and are saying i think i would like to go to this country i should try it right um you know sure you, you missed the opportunity with the electives and so you, you're probably going to either use just jamaican references or come to Canada and you try to get some clinical experience. Um, observerships aren't the best, right? But I'll be honest, I used an observership for one of my letters and it worked. So even though I say it's not the best, it's not impossible. Um, if you can come up here and work as a clinician assistant, that's a specific job title where you do have some hands-on clinical experience with the, the patients and try to get a letter reference through that. That's fair as well. Um, and then there's something else that we didn't really have much time to chat about, but specifically for, for family medicine, if that's what you're interested in, there are what they call practice-ready assessments, which are training opportunities outside of a formal residency program, um, which are open for persons who have work experience from the country of origin. So if you've been in Jamaica working in clinic for like two or three years, then it all it does is it opens up more um, training opportunities for you. Uh, and, and those are other ways that you can get accelerated training to get licensed as a family physician. You have a couple for specialist physicians as well. I just don't know them as well. But but yeah, that's, that's sort of what I'd say to, to persons who are either closer to the end of training or have finished um, medical school and have been working for a little while. That's great information because I was just like, I don't want people to feel discouraged that they haven't decided, they didn't make this decision two years ago, but it's still totally possible because persons have done it. Your biggest obstacle really is just going to be getting that permanent resident status if it is that you do want to migrate. But I think we've spoken about multiple pathways or different ways that it can happen through electives, observerships, yeah, and working um, in like an allied position. Um, those are the things that I've been hearing. And the information is definitely out there. And we're seeing that many Jamaicans have done it, done it as recently as probably even this year, you know. So it's definitely possible. But like with all of these conversations, it's a decision that you're going to have to make not on a whim, but one that you have thought about and have decided, yes, this is what I want. This is what I want to try because this is a major life decision. I wouldn't really talk about the cost in this one, but we went through pricing in the other one. And geez, Andre, woof, it's an investment. It really is an investment, right? Well, you know, what I'll say is these exams, if, if you're coming up and you've done the route of, um, you know, gotten status as either a citizen or a permanent resident, mm -hmm. the exams are, um, you can get a tax refund. So you'll get the money back. Oh, right? okay. It might not be immediately because they're not what they call non-refundable um, tax return. So you, you have to have a job and have paid taxes. Mm -hmm. And then the taxes that you've paid, you know, get back. Mm -hmm. Uh, but it, it will stay there and hang out until you get that job. So you do get money back eventually. Okay, that's great. That's really nice. 
That's really nice. It might not be all the money, mm-hmm. right? But, but you get a good chunk change. All right, guys. So if you want to go to Canada, you should think about it. I hope that these series of podcasts have helped you with your decision. And the U Alumni Association in Canada or the Canadian chapter is very, um, I hear you guys are fairly active and very helpful and your Facebook pages is open, all that stuff, right? Yeah, yeah, we'll try, we'll try, we'll try. <laughs> so can persons reach out to you and where can they reach out to you? Um, share with us your contact details, whether it's through social media, email, anything like that. But I'm sure persons will want to maybe reach out and ask you for help and ask you for your experience and whatnot. Yeah, so people can reach out, like email address is just last name dot first name. So coleman.andre at outlook.com. So that's C-O-L-E-M-A-N dot A-N-D-R-E at outlook.com. Or they can search for me on LinkedIn. I don't think there are too many people with my name on LinkedIn. So it should be pretty, pretty findable. And and yeah, I'd, I'd be happy to, to respond to any questions anyone has. Ooh, okay. Thank you so much for sharing with us um, just your thoughts on how to create a profile that makes you an attractive candidate. And one thing, guys, you know, even though we were talking specifically about Canadian exams, I'm seeing a lot of similarities between this and um, the USMLE interview process and even the profile making process. So even if you are thinking about another country, you can see where a lot of these suggestions, a lot of these experiences can be translated to other countries and to other scenarios and situations. So um, I hope this was really helpful. I really enjoyed the conversation. And even thinking that some of these things can help for outsider medicine. Like if you just want to ace an interview um, or ace a personal essay, like if you're, if you're applying for something else, these are some really great tips. So I really hope um, you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. If you want to reach out to me, you know you can reach out to me on social media at on Instagram or on Twitter at the layman's DR you can send me an email at the layman's doctor at gmail.com. Everything spelled out, or you can even send me a message through my website, the layman's doctor.com. Thank you so much for listening. And until next time, I'll see you then. Bye. <laughs> <laughs> So when I got that symptom, first thing I said was constipation, which in retrospect wasn't the best symptom to choose. You're right, like constipation. <laughs> I, I when <laughs> I, I mean, <laughs> oh god. So I never just mute yourself. No, because I never planned for laugh. Oh my god. <laughs> Oh, <laughs> no, I can't stop laughing. Oh, that's, that's like the last. I don't think that's the symptom I would have gone for either. It, it's, you know, leave, leave me on the constipation. Yeah.